dialectical behavior therapy is becoming one of the more popular methods used in psychotherapy today. We're here with John Donkervoet, who uses this extensively in his practice. Um, I know that cognitive behavior therapy has a longer history, but dialectical behavior therapy seems to have evolved from that. Can you tell me about that process and kind of how they are different? Right. The, it, it actually grew out of the, the cognitive behavioral tradition. And, and one of the things I think that, that Linehan is sort of on record in talking about is, is her perceived failure in working with these chronically suicidal clients mm -hmm. and, and feeling that there was a, an aspect to traditional CBT or cognitive therapy that was lacking in, in helping them develop certain behaviors or skills that would allow them to function more appropriately. Mm -hmm. and, and as a result, it, it was almost this trial and error kind of process of putting together specific skills that people who predominantly had chronic depression, chronic suicidal ideation, and emotion dysregulation problems that would uh, uh, be easy to teach, could be packaged in such a way, and then could be actually Sort of, sort of, not only taught, but then tracked as to whether or not they were being implemented, and and so there is, you know, DBT really is, you know, cognitive behavioral very frequently goes with homework assignments, mm -hmm. and and DBT sort of steps that idea up so that it remains, therapy remains an integral part of any patient's life, almost on a daily basis kind of the idea, oh yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be working on. And, and so the package that she developed, once she started researching it, was really successful with two kinds of people. These people who were, were suicidal and then also clearly because that frequently goes along with self-harmful behavior and borderline kinds of pathology. I'm not great, I'm not big on categorization, so uh, I know that predominantly it was for the borderline personality, but, but I also think of it much more as for people who have strong emotional dysregulation. It certainly was centered in the cognitive behavioral tradition, yeah. That sounds like a tall order, what you're talking about. She had to develop this entire schema to accomplish a great many goals with a very challenging population and, and a scary population. Suicide is always the thing that scares therapists the most. Right. And, and what I would say is the beauty of DBT, why I'm, I'm you know, a huge proponent of it, is that it, to me, does a couple of brilliant things in helping anchor people away from suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. First off, you teach skills almost immediately. If you're feeling that way, here are other things that you can do to get you through those moments. I work really hard to, to make sure that I am totally in their shoes, that I'm fully validating their perspective, that, that and, and I've had a lot of clients who come in and say, I, I've, I frequently don't feel heard by my therapist, that, that they, they are doing stupid things, they are doing crazy things. Mm -hmm. And when a therapist is able to say, I can totally understand why you would be doing that, given the way that you're perceiving the situation, However, there are other things that you could be doing that might be more functional, more adaptive, not make the situation worse. They feel heard in a different way. I don't think that's special to me as a therapist. Mm -hmm. I do think it is something special to 
Linehan's conceptualization of validation and the importance of, of kind of greeting a patient at a place like your emotions are always valid. They may not be justified, but they are always valid. And I, I would say that I think in this population, absolutely essential. Yeah. Which is another thing that's astonishing uh, about this form of therapy is that clients with emotional dysregulation uh, are notoriously difficult to establish stable relationships. That's sort of the definition right. of dysregulation. And so what challenges, what special challenges do you have uh, as you're trying to meet them on days when they're not your biggest fans? Right. And, and one of the things that I, I do is that I will bring it back to the relationship almost immediately. So there are a subset of the emotion dysregulation population that are like people who are covered with third degree burns, right? Any move they make is gonna be painful to them. Mm. And I do think that, that acknowledging, I hear that you're really hurting right now. And then pivoting just a little bit, I'm hoping that you don't take it out on me because not only do I care about you, but when you take it out on me, it makes it difficult for me to want to work with you. And what that does is, it, it sounds miserable, but I'm playing off a little bit of part of the pathology, which is, you know, the abandonment. It's like, oh great, now I've got another therapist who's gonna kick me out. So there is a tension that, that you have to, like, that's not okay in any relationship. And, and we've got this special thing going on because I care about you, I'm meeting with you, and I'm trying to get you better. And if you use me as your whipping boy, then, then that makes it harder for me to be able to do my job. It's an incredibly simple but effective way of managing when they come in and they're super prickly <laughs> and, and looking to, to beat up on somebody. So you've got these dual challenges. You're on the one hand, maintaining a relationship, maintaining a very important relationship, mm -hmm. providing a model for a stable relationship that perhaps they have not had before, mm -hmm. and then simultaneously teaching them this whole array of skills. Mm -hmm. I understand you use group therapy uh, for that portion of it. Is, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. And so the, the, the contract that any client in full-fledged DBT, so not DBT-informed, which there is a lot of, but, but I only do full-fledged DBT. So, so they, are a, a, they have individual therapy on a weekly basis. They have group therapy on a weekly basis. They also have available to them phone coaching consistently. So all of my clients who are in DBT have my cell number and are able to call me at any time. I do let them know I sleep between 10 and 6. I do let them know I would never step out of another session. And I do let them know that, you know, when the new James Bond movie comes out, I may go see that, right? You have a lot. I don't know if I'll go see the James Bond, but it was an example. But, but the part of the idea is they then know that there is somebody who's going to be available to them when they have these darker moments. I also train them very quickly. When you call me, the first thing I'm going to ask you is what skills have you tried? So don't call me if you haven't mm -hmm. done anything, right? I make it okay if you want to call and just vent, you're allowed to leave you know, a voicemail. If you want me to call you back, you have to tell me that. So I establish rules and parameters around it. I also would say that I work 
to extinguish the need to call pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. and, and the way that I do that is making sure that they have the skills that are needed. So, so right. basically the idea is they, they come in for group therapy where they learn the skills, right? Mm -hmm. And we go over all this in, entire manual twice over the course of a year. Then they come in for individual therapy where I am reinforcing and, and pointing out exactly where they could be using those skills, right? And then the phone coaching is really meant if you're having a terrible time you call me and I'll remind you of the skills. You don't get a session between sessions, right? But you, I'm certainly available to say, hey, have you tried doing some distraction, for example? So practically, how many times, how many hours of the week do you suspect that you spend on the phone? It's surprisingly small. It is surprisingly small. So I would say a week that I am on the phone with one of my clients for more than an hour is a really high level of contact. Okay. Yeah. So so I I I would say that on an average day, modally, I don't get any calls. Yeah. And it's rare that I get two separate calls. Some clients have difficulties with abandonment and those are people who tend to cling and want to stay in contact with you because when you're gone, they're gone. Mm -hmm. That's the theory. Right. So have you had clients like that that, uh, that you've had to say, we're going to have to back off on the phone? Yes, and, and I have had a, a, a couple of clients who have, have, you know, their, their gig is to get enmeshed with therapists mm -hmm. and, and hence they've wound up on my doorstep having burned out previous therapists. Mm -hmm. I have that conversation very openly, very clearly, and when it starts to show up on the horizon, I, I am working in session to say, I, we've got to establish some sort of boundary here. Because if you're doing it to me, you know, as a DBT therapist, super flexible and super tolerant, if I'm getting burnt out on you, I would imagine everybody burns out on you. And, and because, it, for, for whatever reason, Bill, it's a weird way to think about it, but since it's coming from me, it's not a deal-breaking intervention, right? It's, it, and, and I think part of that has to do with it, it comes in this, I don't know, this, this kind of frame of, I, I know where you're coming from, I know why you're doing it, and I have to tell you the effect on me because it wouldn't be fair in a relationship if I didn't tell you because that's what leads other people to push you away. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Uh, and but the amazing thing is that they're hearing that from you, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that speaks to the therapeutic alliance that you have established with them. That they right. You can only make statements like that in in a relationship of intense trust. Yeah. So this is very intensive work, which implies that this is perhaps several times per week sessions. Uh, at, there are times, yeah, that I have clients who are in crisis that that need to bump up the amount of times that they see. I I have you know, visual contact with everybody twice, once in group and, and once in individual. Group is not a process group, mm -hmm. and, and it is really a structured, we spend the first half of group going over homework from the manual, and then we spend the second half of group doing some sort of, of new training, and, and they leave with a homework assignment. Mm -hmm. And so it's, 
it, it sometimes I have had groups because they connect very well over the course of a year that have felt a little processier from time to time. But by and large, I'm, I feel like I have a job to do in the hour and a half that I have them in front of me. And, and by gum, they're going to leave, you know, recovering this stuff. So, so I, don't, I don't dissuade people from talking about what's going on personally for them, but mm -hmm. I also try and, and move it back into the skill arena pretty quickly. So the groups are topical. I would suspect yep. a, a rotating set of topics. Is that correct? That's correct. There are, are it, everything in DBT is based on core mindfulness, right? Uh -huh. and, and that is the, the, the sort of uh, kind of foundation that leads out into the other areas. The other areas break down into emotion regulation skills, interpersonal effectiveness skills, and then distress tolerance. Mm -hmm. And each one of those areas gets covered twice over the course of the year. Core mindfulness gets covered six times. So we do emotion regulation, we go back to mindfulness training. Then we go over to distress tolerance, then we come back to mindfulness training. We go to interpersonal effectiveness and then back to mindfulness. So, so they get a ton of ongoing training about how to just be still, how to observe their experience, how to be present with their thoughts, present with their feelings how to, to use the stillness to be able to make a determination as to what skill they need to apply. So every one of my groups starts with, at very least, a couple of minutes of, of mindfulness. We just sit together and, and uh, are, are, have a little chime kind of thing and, and begin that. So there's formal meditation training that precedes uh, that, and once they get rolling with that, then it takes less to just a chime. Right, reminds people, right. yep. here we are, we're, yep. we're starting off And so they this actually way. get sort of an orientation. This is what mindfulness means. Here's how you do it. So you mentioned that uh, people have a contract for a year, mm -hmm. and I would imagine practically not everybody's going to be starting at exactly the same time. Is that right? It's like rolling admissions. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, and anybody can jump in. You know, after, after a couple of weeks, you figure out this is how group is working, right? In the best of all worlds, they begin at the beginning of a particular, but, but even right. that doesn't dissuade me from. But the, the year also is the minimum. So, so the vast majority of clients that, that, that I work with, and this may be my own therapeutic failure, but the end of the year isn't the, it's not like a hard drop off. The vast majority continue on in some form of, of ongoing therapy after that. And I would say if I have one small criticism of DBT, it's that people come in and they extinguish, their, their lives are less dramatic. They mm -hmm. extinguish the really strong acting out behaviors. They can get to the end of the year and still feel a little hollow, a little empty, right? The people that I consult with and, and I have been thinking about what, what is a suitable next phase of treatment after you've completed formal DBT, because I would say there's a diminishing return to continuing on in the classroom mm -hmm. after a certain point of time. You, you hear the skills you know, twice and you kind of get it, they're operationalized, they're functional, but there is this ongoing almost the, the emptiness that, mm -hmm. that, that kind of typifies people with severe character pathology, right? 
And, and so we've looked at, at sort of second tier, like Jeffrey Young's schema therapy or, or Les Greenberg's emotion-focused therapy okay. as, as a way of, of kind of filling some of those emotional gaps that I, I feel DBT does not 100% kind of cover. So, so most people go on for about two years, okay. a second year of being in treatment. Um, and, and I am just, I don't know whether this belongs or not. I'm at the beginning of, of sort of setting a three-year cap because mm -hmm. I figure after three years, the intensity of the treatment, that if, if I haven't gotten the job done, right. <laughs> somebody else needs to take a Find break. me and get a puppy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> take a trip. <laughs> so um, we're talking about a year of individual therapy, a year of group therapy, at a minimum, mm -hmm. beyond that, how do insurance companies feel about this? They are, they are delighted with it. Yeah. Really? So, so I, uh, it's, it, I have never had it uncovered. I've been out of network, and when I've called and said I'm out of network, I don't care to be involved in your network, uh, they have been very good at, at uh, uh, sort of immediately when they hear it's DBT. And I think it's because it's it's so well established in the literature at this point in time. Yeah, when I was in in Hawaii, uh, Kaiser uh, mm -hmm. would was very frequently uh, not I wouldn't say begging that's too but 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 very willing to send us their in house patients because they were too taxing for their therapists, mm -hmm. right? And again, I don't feel it's anything special as me as as a therapist. I believe that it provides a, a roadmap for for dealing with difficult people and not feeling that they are as difficult as every other clinician. When I when I say I, I do DBT and I work predominantly with borderlines, they're like, "Oh, you poor thing," and it doesn't feel that way to to me at all. It doesn't feel that way at well, all. Yeah. Hats off to you. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not to me. It's hats off to her because it, it it just works, right? It okay. works. Yeah, if it's followed. Jumping back to group therapy, again, we have some, we have now eight people in a room? Yep, between eight, eight and ten. Eight and ten people in a room, all who have a history of emotional dysregulation. Mm -hmm. From time to time, conflicts must break out between members. And, mm -hmm. and how do you manage that? There, that's, that's a really great question. First off, in group, I ignore bad behavior. So when, when people are doing things that are therapy interfering, it actually becomes a targeted behavior for the treatment. Hmm. And it is like one of the first things that we're talking about in the next session. If it becomes therapy destructive, then I absolutely will, will intervene, which would look like taking somebody aside during break and saying what you're doing really isn't working. It's starting to interfere with what I'm trying to get done in group. And, and then giving them a couple of choices as to how to manage it. Um, but, but I also think that, that in my case, I have multiple groups going on. Mm -hmm. So if there is a high personality conflict between two of the clients, I can, I can move people to another group. I would say it's one of those things I think that people forecast will be a problem that turns out to be much less, it's like the phone thing. I don't get that many phone calls. I don't have to intervene with people in group who are going at it with one another. Part of that is it's a really structured environment. 
They're not coming in to talk about, I think she's a jerk, I don't want to sit next to her. They're coming in to learn a specific skill to deliver their home. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So it's, yes. it's pretty formal, right. So the atmosphere there is almost closer to classroom than it is traditional group therapy in terms of an interpersonal group. It is didactic, absolutely. Okay, okay. Blackboards and, uh, uh, and the whole nine dry, dry erase whiteboards. Well, I'm dating myself. My <laughs> <laughs> Certainly dating myself yeah. there. But, but it's also, I, I would say that, that we, have, we use a couple of different things. If people come in and they've done their homework, they, we have a big bag of stickers, and they can pick a sticker. You would think that grown adults would be like, I don't want, you know, but they're like, oh, is there a Hello Kitty in here? So they, they dig that. If a certain percentage of people get their homework done over a long enough period of time, we have a pizza party. And, and so there are these this nested reinforcers that, uh -huh. that are available to them, which, which I, I, guess, I guess we all like to get a paycheck. I think we yeah. all like to feel like, yeah, we've done a good job. I get my sticker. So, so there are also ways that I think the, we create an environment. I don't want it. I, I, I would hate to have to go to a behavior class. I know that there's, I don't have as, every now and then when I, when I bring up to my group, oh, I, I can't imagine anybody wants to be here tonight. I'll have one or two people like, well, I really wanted to be here tonight. I'm like, well, that's weird. Uh -huh. Because I just can't imagine people wanting to do it. So I try to create a little bit of an environment that is, is fun, that's user-friendly, that allows them to feel connected. And, and I think that is also helpful in defraying the individual personality things that, that can erupt and make and make it more difficult. Yeah. And you throw the eraser at the I have never done that. <laughs> so I do so, give my clients a fair amount of crap though, I will say that. Yeah. I'm gonna put some words in your mouth here. Mm -hmm. In group, your role is teacher. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like in individual therapy, your role is kind of halfway between uh, empathetic listener mm -hmm. and football coach. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think it's a, it's, it's a great way of putting it. We have diary cards and, and they are expected to fill out their diary cards on a daily basis. And, and one side is uh, about the areas in which they've had struggles, whether they've had suicidal thoughts, whether there's been any substance abuse, whether they've thought about quitting therapy, whether they've hurt themselves. And then day's best point, day's lowest point. The other side has a whole list of the skills that they have used on each day. Mm -hmm. I liken that to vital signs. You know, you go see your physician, takes your blood pressure, takes your temperature, right, your pulse rate. And, and so my expectation is that people will come in with a diary card each week. I am always let down. Nobody, nobody does it with any great consistency. Right. But functionally, it's the place that, that a DBT therapist is supposed to begin. Mm -hmm. and, and what that does is my challenge with typical therapy, and other therapies, therapists are, are much more skilled at being able to, to decipher what's going on for a client than I am, but very frequently I would have clients who came in and what they wanted to talk about was the road rage that they experienced on the way to the office, mm -hmm. right? Now if that's the worst thing that happened to them over the course of the week, that's a good place Pretty to start. Good week. But right, right. But if they if they hurt themselves on Wednesday, or if they, you know, punched a wall uh, on on Tuesday, and they're coming in on Friday and talking about the road rage, 
I'm missing an opportunity to really investigate the things that brought them to therapy in the mm -hmm. first place. And that's what the diary card is meant to be. So they come in and what they start talking about is the worst moment over the course of the week the, that led to behavior on their part that was really maladaptive. And beginning there, I will do, you know, most therapists think of it as sort of like a functional assessment. assessment. In DBT, we consider it a chain analysis and work really hard to break down what it is that led up to the problematic behavior, right? Link by link in this chain, and then what happened after they exhibited the problematic mm -hmm. behavior. And what I'm looking for is, you know, all the antecedents, all the reinforcers, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what I'm helping them look for is, here's where you could have used this skill. This is where a different kind of communication might have helped you. This is where a timeout might have been effective. Do you see how you got your parents to listen to you once you hit a volume of 10? Can you see how that would create a likelihood of you wanting to hit that volume again? And, and by redoing that time and time again, right, you are walking them through so that they learn how to do it themselves. Uh -huh. I'm going to get in this fight with my boyfriend again. Oh, wait, we went over this before. If I do this, I might get a different outcome. And my belief is that when people are able to change their behavior with positive effect, that they become their own therapists, right, is, is really what I'm shooting for. Yeah. DBT is famous for its collection of acronyms. Mm -hmm. like probably half a dozen, a dozen right. <laughs> right. different acronyms. And do you find that uh, your clients are actually memorizing these and actually using them as sort of checklists in those situations that they're called for? I, I, I absolutely do. I would say that, that some of them get a little bit involved, um, but, but there are a handful, particularly about the communication, the dear man, give and fast, are three mm -hmm. of the major acronyms. Mm -hmm. acronyms. And, and uh, I, I very regularly, when we're going over that, start to hear it become part of their vocabulary as to how they are addressing issues in their lives. So mm -hmm. that part definitely sticks. The accepts, the improves, they're, they're pretty complicated. They, some of them don't really fit with the letters, so, <laughs> so they're right. drawn out a little. But, but the idea behind them, definitely. So, so people, you know, the, 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 we talk a lot about distraction. Uh -huh. Nobody really knows what all of the accepts things are, which is how wise mind, you know, uses accepts to distract, right? Uh -huh. But they uh -huh. do get the idea, I need to distract myself because the pain's too intense right now. Yeah. Many therapists, and I might include myself historically among mm -hmm. them, uh, saw a majority of clients that were the worried well, mm -hmm. and uh, who were there really to do a core dump and not to get too much from you. They just, they just wanted a, a good listening ear. Mm -hmm. DBT, in contrast, is very much teaching skills, mm -hmm. and teaching skills to a population that sorely needs them. Mm -hmm. uh, here, I'm going to pat you on the head a bit. I mean, mm -hmm. th these, this is transformative. Mm -hmm. right? These are people who were probably had this long history of dysfunction, mm -hmm. and suddenly they have a skill set and they are functional. Mm -hmm. I imagine you have uh, quite a fan base. <laughs> uh, well, it, yeah, sometimes I do, and and I am always take the fan. You, you know, the the clients that are like, "How dare you go on vacation? What'll I do?" <laughs> I take that with a total grain of salt. Um, 
But, but what I would say is that DBT also operates on, a, on an assumption, right? And I'm, I, in my mind, I debate, and, and with my colleagues, I debate whether or not the assumption is accurate. DBT acts under the assumption that there is a skills deficit mm-hmm. in the patients and that if you teach those skills to them, they will get better. I would say the proof is in the pudding that when you teach, but the idea here is that when strong emotions arise, the DBT line of thinking is, what can I do to cap it, Mm -hmm. right? Now there is a ton in DBT about how it is that we experience our emotions, how it is that we can express them effectively, how it is that we can sit with them. But ultimately, when they get too intense, we are doing something to keep them in control. Something like emotion-focused therapy operates on a different assumption, that when an emotion comes up, if you can do something to bring up a competing emotion at the same time, you can transform that initial emotion, right? So the hypothesis with DBT is, is only holds to the extent that people actually have a skill deficit, that Mm -hmm. they don't know what to do when they're upset, right? Or if there's some barrier from allowing them to, to participate in more skillful behavior. The thing that I have found consistently, because, you know, basically it's predominantly for borderline, it's for chronic suicidal people, but I get a lot of people in, in my group who almost talk me into, I know that you do DBT, that's what I'm coming for, nothing else has seemed to help. And they're really high functioning people. They've really got lives that from the outside look like they're pretty well sewn together. Right? They get into DBT and they will say things like, why don't they teach this in elementary school? Because if I had known this, you know, if I had known here are effective ways to communicate, here are good ways to get what you want out of a situation that is highly conflictual, my life would have been totally much better than it has been. I hear that from those people and I think to myself, you know, maybe there is something to that. Yes. And given that, that I have to do the homework as I'm teaching the homework, because I come in with an example of each week of here's how I applied every one of these skills so that you know I'm doing it, I'm trying to demonstrate a couple of things. One is life is hard for everybody, and there are times that I blow a gasket with my wife or kids you know, just the way that you might. But I also feel I have a, you know, a PhD in, in this stuff, and it wasn't insti- until I started doing DBT that I really felt like, okay, I'm kind of in charge of my life and my emotions. Uh-huh. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I do feel that at baseline, it could help anybody. And, and, and so when you say you've got a fan base, I don't think I do. I, I definitely feel it's a package of stuff that, whoa, really can help a person if you have any kind of motion dysregulation problem, right? That can help a person be in better charge of how it is that they manage themselves. And, and you make a good point that, uh, you know, in terms of when was the Magna Carta signed, that's, that's not a piece of information that I've ever used in life, even mm-hmm. though it was drilled into me. But here's how I manage a, an emotion that's popping out inappropriately. Mm-hmm. That's a skill that would be used every day. And why are we not teaching that? Right. Right.
This podcast was brought to you by Therapy Appointment, a practice management system designed especially for psychotherapists. Therapy Appointment provides online scheduling, billing, insurance, charting, appointment reminders, teletherapy, HIPAA-compliant communication, and much more. Therapy Appointment. You provide the therapy, we provide the rest. More info at www.therapyappointment.com. If you have a suggestion for our future episode of this podcast, please email me at bill at therapyappointment.com. Thanks for listening. See you again next week.